0: Hello my name is Jade Smith and I'm a business relationship manager at Equalor. Most of our listeners will know me and have hopefully listened to some of our other podcasts that we've previously recorded. Today I'm joined by Matthew Taylor our business development director and in today's recording we're going to discuss the topic of client vulnerability and what steps we take to identify potentially vulnerable clients. So Matt Would you be able to provide a broad overview of client vulnerability at the moment and why this is such an important topic within the equity release industry?
1: Yeah, hi Jade and thanks for having me on today. Uh, Vulnerability is undoubtedly a hot topic at the moment within the later life lending market, particularly due to the demographic of client that we normally see. The average age of an equity release client being 67, um, we're statistically far more likely to interact with more um, potentially vulnerable clients than any other areas of financial planning. A recent FCA definition stated that a vulnerable client is someone who, due to their personal circumstances, is especially susceptible to detriment, particularly where a firm is not acting with appropriate levels of care. Therefore, it is important to firstly highlight some of the personal circumstances that we're looking out for and what we can do to apply some extra levels of care, and then on to consider how the equity release legal process can help protect these clients, as well as brokers further down the line.
0: Okay, I would certainly agree that vulnerability is a hot topic at the moment, and I'm certainly reading more in the industry press about the levels of protection firms are taking to help safeguard vulnerable clients. Would you be able to expand on what you mean by personal vulnerability?
1: Yeah, this is difficult to categorise specifically, but what we're looking for here are considerations and issues that aren't directly linked to a financial transaction or the mortgage contract itself. So areas of focus for us would be things like communication issues, where clients are deaf, hard of hearing, blind, um, or cannot write, or maybe where English isn't their first language. We would need to adapt our approach to ensure we can explain their legal advice in a format that they can process and confirm their understanding. Examples of this would be producing documentation in large print or finding a translator to help out during the client's home visit. Also, we're on the lookout for where clients have intellectual limitations or where they haven't had to make a financial decision for many years and maybe find the whole process quite overwhelming. In these cases where we're satisfied that clients actually have capacity, but their understanding of the mortgage contract and particularly the more complex elements, um, for example, early repayment charges are borderline or needs to be explained in a different way. In these cases, we may book out a longer home visit appointment or find a slightly different way of explaining some of the more complex legal advice. Recent bereavements are also life events that we'd want to be informed of before opening a file. This is normally where a spouse has passed away, but can also involve other family members. Um, This is even more pertinent if it was the deceased spouse that used to deal with the paperwork. Again, we may need to change our approach to ensure the client feels comfortable interacting with us, as well as again taking extra time when dealing with some of the more complex parts of the process.
0: Great. Are there any other factors that you'd want to know about or perhaps take particular care over?
1: Yes, we always need to take extra care when dealing with third parties. We as solicitors will have a slightly different approach to third party contact than some, some mortgage brokers in that we'd really prefer not to use them. Most are well-intentioned, but others aren't and can often be the cause of stress. So who they are, are they benefiting from the equity release and how long they've known the client for will all be important questions for us to have answers to before agreeing to liaise with a third party. Also a new area for us in terms of potential personal vulnerability is where we are completing some maybe some complex additional work alongside the client's equity release application. We'll need to ensure that the client is proceeding with any additional works with full understanding of those implications. The equity release is obviously a priority but do they understand the implications of unwinding a trust or perhaps completing a variation to a lease? For cases where we need to bring a trust to a close, we involve a specialist senior private client lawyer who will spend some time discussing the implications with clients and beneficiaries and ensure understanding that unwinding a trust is in the best interest for the clients. You can find out more about this by listening to our podcast that deals with trusts and their implications to an equity release application separately.
0: Okay, thank you for that, Matt. I think you've explained what you term personal vulnerability very well. You mentioned financial vulnerability as well. Um, So could you explain what you mean by that?
1: Sure. By financial vulnerability, we mean considerations and issues directly linked to the client's financial situation. So how they plan to spend their equity lease proceeds, as well as linked transactions that may be funded by the lifetime mortgage. I suppose these are more commonly understood areas of vulnerability.
0: Great. So could you explain what we're actually looking for here then, Matt?
1: Again, there are quite a few areas that we'll be interested in, but we'll be looking for things like um, existing mortgage litigation. So our clients being hassled by an existing lender? What stage is this litigation process at? And can we help with stopping threatening letters and calls? If we can, we will. And often a simple letter explaining that we are representing the client in a mortgage b- matter that will clear their outstanding borrowing instantly reduces the number of calls letters a client may receive also be interested in unsecured debt level um, which is similar to to what I've mentioned about the existing mortgage litigation so are they being threatened with court proceedings and would they be proceeding with the equity release uh, without these threats are they even repaying somebody else's debts Um, these are all factors we'll want to know more about particularly if the client has indicated this is the only option for them again we'll be able to help with reducing some of the contact they may receive but we'll also want to be certain that they fully understand the long-term legal implications of securing this borrowing against their property. Use of funds is another area that we will pay special attention to. Not specifically what the clients are spending the money on, but are they being consistent with what the funds are being used for when explaining that to us? Is this in character with their general spending as well will also be an important question to be answered. Are both clients telling us the same thing and does this match with what they've told the mortgage broker? If we have any concerns about these points, we will usually investigate further. So that brings me on to third-party gifting as potential use of funds, another area that we would want to pay particular attention to if we are presented with any red flags. So who is the beneficiary, are they a family member, and what are they themselves using the money for? We have a separate gifting process by which clients need to sign something confirming three things. Implications of gifting the money in relation to state benefits, the fact that future care requirements may be compromised, and also that the client's estate will be lessened for family members, all of which will need to be confirmed separately before we can proceed to completion. And finally, another new area that we've seen crop up over the last year or so is financial vulnerability associated with linked transactions. As mentioned, this is a new area for us and mainly driven by the pressure applied by certain third parties who are relevant to completion. For example, pressure from an ex-spouse in relation to a divorce settlement. We recently had a fire where our client was in receipt of a barrage of abusive messages from an ex-spouse, therefore were they acting accordingly. In this case, we would want to investigate further to ensure that they are.
0: Excellent. Again, some really good detail there, Matt, and an interesting insight as to what a client's solicitor is on the lookout for. You haven't discussed power of attorney applications yet, so do you have the same process for dealing with a client under an LPA?
1: Yeah, sure. We do have a podcast that solely deals with power of attorney applications, so I would suggest listening to that for a full overview. However, at a very high level, firstly, the use of funds needs to be considered, and depending on who the lender's solicitors are, this will even need to be for care or for the welfare and benefit of the donor. Obviously, the welfare and benefit of a donor can be reasonably vague, so we will need to investigate this further. For example, we've had a case accepted where the attorneys were buying a motorhome to take mum and dad around the country for holidays. Either way, we'll need proof of use of funds in all cases. The monies are being used for care. It's relatively easy for us to provide evidence, but we will still need to see invoices and care plans, um, even building works, for example, if home renovations are taking place. Lender solicitors may want to see comparison quotes as well to ensure that the donors are not overpaying. How the LPA is set up in regards to structure is also important to consider. Firstly, any client that does have capacity cannot sign for their spouse as well under the POA application. For example, Mr. who has capacity cannot sign as one of the attorneys for his wife. There needs to be another attorney to sign. Also, if attorneys are signing jointly, this may pose some logistical problems as the original paperwork would need to travel around the country unless they can be at the same face-to-face meeting. We'll also need the original power of attorney document before completion can be set, as this is a land registry requirement. We'll also need to complete an OPG search to make sure no restrictions have been placed on the attorneys, preventing them um, from acting on behalf of the donors. Lastly, we'll also need a GP letter or confirmation from a medical specialist to prove loss of capacity. This can be reasonably challenging at the moment, as lots of GPs are refusing to comment on capacity key points here are that the letter will need to state that the clients cannot understand and retain information contained within the mortgage application. If necessary, we can refer this out to a private firm, um, somebody like TSF, for example, who will be able to complete this uh, assessment remotely.
0: Again, some excellent information there, Matt. And as you mentioned, we have a full podcast on POA applications where advisors can find out even more information. So moving on, Matt, why as solicitors do you need to know about these different situations and what underpins the advice that you give to clients?
1: Okay, so firstly, at a high level, we have to abide by the SRA code of conduct. We're acting with honesty, integrity and in the best interests of our clients at all times. If it is clear that proceeding with the equity release isn't in the best interests of our client, we will need to advise them of this and terminate the instruction. We also have a duty of confidentiality, which has some crossover with some of the other areas I've already mentioned. For example, the use of third parties and the amount of contact allowed with other solicitors and linked transactions. We also pay special attention to the Equity Release Council Rule 8.4, where here we're declaring that the client has a capacity to understand the mortgage contract and is not under any undue duress. We also have confirmed the client's ID and have conducted a face-to-face meeting. We have to consider factors objectively and honestly and based on what is presented to us. For example that is why we need to know about anything that may contribute or mask client vulnerability as early as possible another important document that underpins our advice is the solicitor certificate here we are concerned with the undertakings and declarations made to the lender solicitors we can only make them if we know them to be true as they're legally binding across both parties and underpin the security of the mortgage contract between lender and client this document is usually signed by two solicitors one from Equilore and the client's mobile solicitor and confirms both are satisfied with the above points as well as making an additional declaration around capacity and duress. Our mobile solicitor will also talk the client through a summary of risk document during their home visit and this allows our solicitor to assess physical and mental impairment of the client by asking more in-depth questions around the mortgage contract. The attending solicitor needs to be happy and the client needs to confirm their understanding of this during their meeting. The implications to any solicitor making those declarations, if they know them to be untrue, is extremely serious for both the individual and the firm, um, maybe leading to them to being struck off, fined or even imprisoned.
0: That's very interesting, Matt. I didn't know there were so many different layers of protection for clients and how important the home visit is in terms of safeguarding potentially vulnerable clients. So what would you do if you did have concerns over a client's vulnerability, capacity or presence of dress?
1: Well, our presumed position is always of no vulnerability, so we need to either prove that this is incorrect or return to our previous presumption, which is very similar to how capacity is assessed. If something calls this into question, then we will have to investigate um, to be able to put us back into a position where we are happy to proceed. Red flags and warning signs are really important for us in terms of picking this up as early as possible, and these could really be anything to do with some of the examples I've previously mentioned around financial and non-financial vulnerability, However, the main ones are failing to remember conversations, inconsistent conversations, clients being evasive, aggressive, or difficult to get hold of, third parties not wanting clients to speak to us directly, and requested paperwork and documentation not being returned to us. Further investigation can again be a simple conversation or a drill down on any of the points I've previously mentioned, but ultimately we may need to discuss our concerns with the broker involved, as they may have some further information or background as to why the client may be viewed as vulnerable. We may also use information from the broker's suitability letter to sense check what the client is telling us, particularly around use of funds and assessing if the client is in severe financial difficulty. We may also deploy a longer face-to-face meeting with one of our mobile solicitors and ask them to make a detailed attendance note specifically addressing any concerns we may have. This will be stored alongside our general advice to the client. In the large majority of cases, after spending some extra time with the client or adapting our advice approach slightly, we can satisfy ourselves that the client isn't vulnerable and we have no concerns regarding capacity or duress. In these cases, we can proceed to completion in a straightforward and prompt manner. However, in the cases where we cannot satisfy ourselves of these points, the ultimate sanction would be to decline to act for the client.
0: Thank you Matt, very interesting and I think you've covered some really good ground today and explained some of the current challenges you're seeing in relation to client vulnerability. It's something we'll probably revisit in the future as we continue to evolve this vital area of client safeguarding.